if you learn how to control it, the entrepreneurial brain becomes the most powerful tool in your arsenal. In this podcast, I will dive deep into the psychology and biology behind it to help you understand yourself and ultimately become your best, most authentic self. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Entrepreneurial Brain Podcast. Today, I'm here with Patrick Ronvoisier, co-founder and president of SalesBrain, author, speaker, C-suite coach, specialized in business growth through scientific persuasion, published Neuromap, the only 100% brain-based and scientific model of persuasion. So that's already a hint. We will dive deep into psychology and the brain. Really looking forward to this one. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Good morning, Maurice, and nice to be with you. It was a brief introduction, but tell people a little bit about yourself, about your journey. Well, I'm, um, I'm an engineer by background, and I'm somebody who's always been fascinated by science. I spend most of my life uh, selling very complicated, complex systems in the software and hardware business. So I'm a French nerd, if you want, who had to sell very expensive stuff with a very long sales cycle. This is typically called the complex sales. And after doing this in Silicon Valley for many years, one day I decided I want to write a book. And because the only thing that I have that is somewhat unique in my life is my knowledge of sales and marketing and my knowledge of the brain, I decided to write a book. And I didn't want the book to be just one of the 20,000 books on sales and marketing. So I had to find something really unique of my book. So it took me about two years. I did some research. I actually quit my job to do this. And I did some research and I found that the answers to a lot of the questions that we are trying to ask or to solve in the business world were answered by people in the neuroscience world. In other words, people that are experts in the brain, they really understand quite well how people make decisions. But that knowledge never made it to the business world. So that's been my endeavor. I have been at it for 20 years. In the process, I wrote a second book a few years ago. And then even more recently, I have companies like LinkedIn that asked me to develop special trainings for them to help people that are trying to build a business, that are trying to sell something, take into account what we know today on how the brain works to be more persuasive. So that's, that's my life in a nutshell. Yeah, I love that. And that's one thing I was super fascinated by, by giving my background was also in the business world. Um, mechanical engineering and economics and then it was like this model of the homo economicus and how behavioral science and this this realization that all oh, the human body the humans are not 100 rational they don't make decisions by a very nice excel spreadsheet where they have the rating of the different factors and then they make the decision so yeah let's talk about decision making how do people make decision and yeah that's a start well you said that people don't make really completely rational decision i think I would go even one step further. People are completely 100% irrational when it comes to making decisions. Right? In fact, uh, one of the first scientists who said it is a researcher who is head of the neuroscience department at, uh, in Los Angeles. And he wrote, his name is Antonio Damasio. And here is what Damasio said. And he's one of the top guy, you know, PhD in neuroscience, And he's been studying how human beings use their brain to make decisions. And I love to quote one of his sentences where Damasio said, we are not thinking machines that feel. We are feeling machines that think once in a while. So Damasio wrote that in 1995 in a book called Descartes' Error. And Damasio demonstrated that we're completely irrational. And the tests that he makes to do this are really, really mind-boggling. I mean, it, it goes beyond our understanding. In other words, Damasio can put people inside an fMRI and he can ask them, do you prefer chocolate or do you prefer vanilla ice cream? Right? And people will tell him, well, I prefer chocolate. And he can go, wrong. Because I can tell that you like vanilla more than what you think you do. And again, it sounds like completely irrational when I say that way, but I would invite anybody to write, read the book of Damasio and really truly understand that we are emotional machines. And this emotion, the reason why we're driven by emotions is because emotion is the fuel that makes us make decisions. And all the decisions that we make are not based on rational fact. They are based on the fact that we always try to maximize our survival. And maximizing our survival often goes with making irrational decisions. Right? In fact, the word emotion 
comes from the Latin words movere, which means to move. So think about it. If you look at the most primitive form of life, it's a unicellular, right? And unicellular, they react only in two ways. So if you drop uh, one little drop of acid close to a unicellular, the unicellular will move away from the acid. Right? If you drop one drop of sugar close to a unicellular, then the unicellular will get close to the sugar to digest it and use it as energy. Right? So emotion have evolved from that basic movement of, oh, wow. I get a stimulus and I have to decide, do I want to get closer to it? Or do I want to get further away from it? And again, that's why we use the word emotion, which is emotion. So an emotion is what precedes the movement of motion. Right? And we human beings, our way we decide has evolved from that very basic idea that whenever we see something, we have to decide, is it an apple? Oh, yeah, I want it. I'm going to get closer. Mm -hmm. right? Or is it a threat? And do I want to move further away? Now, of course, the palette of emotion that we experience today is a lot more complicated. In fact, you know, there is a, a number of scientists have came up with models of emotions. So, to my knowledge, there are at least 22 models of scientifically, you know, that scientifically describe emotions. But they are all based on that fundamental concept that emotion has evolved as a way for us to survive. Makes sense. Movement and the brain, because that's just our brain is so old if you look at it from the evolutionary perspective, because it not only started as humans, but, but you mentioned it, emotion, movement, it helped us navigate the world. It helped us navigate our physical bodies. Then there's the fight or flight system, the stress, recognizing stress. Um, so that makes perfect sense. That's really... So again, I hope that the next time you will talk about emotion that you will realize yeah. that there is nothing rational when we make decisions. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, we are under the illusion that we use rationality when we decide, right? But at mm -hmm. the end of the day, unfortunately, we do not make decisions with an Excel spreadsheet. We make decisions with an organ that's about three pounds, right? And that organ is an emotional machine that thinks only once in a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Great translation to another question. Is there a buy button in the brain? So talking about persuasion in the, the realm of cells, which is quite a... So yeah, th this is a very controversial question and I've been struggling with it for a long, long time. Now, the guy who started to talk about a buy button in the brain is a researcher by the name of Daniel Kahneman. So Kahneman was a professor of psychology in Princeton University. And he wrote a book in 2000 called Think Fast and Slow. And his research work got him the Nobel Prize in Economy. And then amazingly enough, 15 years later, one of his students, a guy by the name of Richard Feller, also got the Nobel Prize for furthering the work of Kahneman on his research to a buy button. Now, Kahneman is talking about two systems in the brain. That's why his book is called Think Fast and Slow. He believes we have two brains. We have a fast brain and we have a slow brain. He named them system one and system two. So system one is what we call the primal brain. It's the fast brain. It's the brain that reacts very quickly. It's the seat of the unconscious, if you want. And the second brain is called system two, and it's the slow brain. It's the, the brain that makes us uniquely human. It's the brain where we have higher level judgment, where we can think, where language is, you know, appears. And Kahneman demonstrated, I think the key word is, it's a demonstration. So you don't have to believe him. He's a scientist. So he demonstrated it rationally that system one or the primal brain still rolls today. So when people tell you, well, no, there is no such thing as a buy button in the brain, we don't really know. But what we know is that that system one is really the key to all our behavior. Right? In fact, um, in our book, in our second book called The Persuasion Code, we spend half of the book to demonstrate that system one is the decision maker. So the first half of our book is a very technical reading on explaining to people why we have that very strong belief that the buy button in the brain is that system one. Now, there is always communication between those two brains. And once in a while, system two, the rational brain wins, but very, very rarely. Right? So in fact, our model is based on the fact that that system one is so primitive 
that it responds only to one of six stimuli. And then from those six stimuli, we can deduct what an effective sales and marketing strategy would be. So when you ask me, is there a buy button in the rank? I don't know how to answer that question. Yeah, absolutely. I love that book. I actually also wrote my thesis partly on that, looking at decision-making, because in the science, the term cognitive bias is a lens that we often look through decision-making. So the deviations from rational perspective, for example, the recency bias, if you have information that are recently, you are more likely to recall them and take them into consideration. And another lens for that I found interesting is that the cognitive bias, again, is the negative perspective, but there's also the evolutionary, we don't, wouldn't have all these biases in our brain if there wouldn't be a need for it. So I love your opinion on, yeah, just the, these cognitive biases, why do we have them and what do they do? Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting question. So to date, I have counted 188 cognitive biases. And what are those cognitive biases? Well, we just talked about the fact that the brain is an emotional machine. So by definition, if it's emotional, it's not going to be completely rational. And scientists have measured and they are trying to decode how these rules of irregularity in human judgments are driven. And that term is called, you know, it's called the cognitive biases. And today we know of 188 cognitive biases. So I'll describe one of them because you started to mention it. It's called the recency primacy effect, right? So if Homo sapiens was a rational decision-making machine, at least our memory would be linear. In other words, we should be able to remember this, you know, the same way and in a linear fashion, which means if I was going to give you a list of five or 10 words, normally if your brain was rational, you should be able to equally remember the first word, the last word, and the word in the middle. Unfortunately, because we are not rational, our human memory doesn't work linearly. It works in the shape of a U-curve, and it's called the recency primacy effect. What does that mean? It means that if I give, a list, if I give you a list of 10 words, you will remember more the first word, you will remember more the last word, and you will tend to forget all the words in between. Again, the curve is a nice U-shape. Now, why do we have that U-shape? Well, it has to do with energy. In other words, our brain, which is only 2% of our body mass, uses 25 to 20 to, I mean, we don't know exactly, but it's anywhere between 20 and 30% of our body energy. So the brain is an energy-angry machine. So because energy is critical for survival, we have to have a built-in mechanism to save energy. And one of that built-in mechanism is the recency privacy effect. What does that mean? Well, imagine you, what you, you walk into a room, which is a room that could present some danger for you, right? When you enter in the new room for the first time, you're gonna be checking your environment around, you're gonna be ultra aware, your brain is gonna burn a lot of calories. Right? And then if you sit in that room for an hour and nothing has jeopardized your survival, in other words, no lion tried to jump on you to kill you, you're, you're going to be sitting and you're going to start crouching in, in your seat like that, right? Why? Because you're going to conserve energy. And then at the end of it, if something happened in the room, you have to reawaken your brain and start to burn energy. Right? So we have that curve of the recency primacy effect embedded in everything we do. And in fact, that curve repeats itself at any frequency. In other words, typically, I can do a test with you. I don't know how many cars you had, but do you remember your first car? Yeah. You know, for most people, it's very easy to remember your first car, right? Now, do you remember your last car? The one you drive normally, yes? So, but if you had 10 cars, I mean, I had probably 15 cars in my life. I'm a lot older than you are, right? But if I had 15 cars in my life, it would be extremely difficult to remember my fifth or my sixth car. So that curve of recency primacy effect applies to a lifetime and it goes all the way down to seven seconds. And again, we have that embedded in us because it's important for our survival. So we just described it for one of the 188 cognitive biases, but all these biases that we have, they are there to help us maximize our probability to survive. And of course, said like that, you go, well, why, as a business guy, why should I care? As a business guy, you should care a lot because I'll give you an example. 
Now, imagine you're going to spend one hour with a prospect, right? You're going to have a meeting with a prospect, either on the phone or face-to-face. -face. How should you use that knowledge of the recency primacy effect? Well, you should use that knowledge to remember that your customer is going to remember the first five minutes of your one-hour meeting, and then at the end, they will only remember the last five minutes of that meeting. So you have to construct your pitch to take that into account. You have to give them something very juicy at the beginning, something very juicy at the end, and in the middle, who cares? In fact, uh, do, you, do you know this guy called George, um, George Lucas? You know yeah. George Lucas, the famous movie maker? The movie maker you yeah. know what he said about the secret to making a good movie? He said, the secret to make a good movie is create a hot opening, create a hot close, and just don't screw up in the middle. So again, just taking the example of one of the 188 cognitive biases, as you can see, it has a lot of impact on how you should build your sales and marketing strategy. Definitely powerful stuff. And one of the things how science makes, at the one hand, it kind of butchers the brain a little bit because it's again the scientific thinking of there's like a list of all these biases which can sometimes derail from the bigger picture especially like i mentioned before when you have this view of oh this is only an error in the brain and not see like the conclusions you can take from that and the behind it so the reasons why this error on the brain is actually there let's dive a little bit deeper into persuasion i mean we already touched on it a little bit what are some things that we have to be aware of, some tools that we can use uh, that's a difficult question right? <laughs> um, now we believe that persuasion works like a language in other words think of it that way if we make the assumption that every human being has two brain that they have a fast brain system one or what we call the primal brain and they have a second brain called system two the slow brain the idea is persuasion is going to work better if you can persuade those two systems separately now the primal the the rational brain is what everybody does now, in other words if you study if you study marketing if you're a smart individual and if you are an entrepreneur you're going to build a product that product should solve the problems you know in the brain of the customer And you're going to use all the logic in the world to create a message, to create a strategy that's going to appeal to the rational brain. That's relatively easy. What's difficult, though, is to create a sales and marketing strategy and a message that's going to appeal to the primal brain. Because that's the brain of the unconscious. That's the brain that is 100% emotional. That's the brain that reacts quickly. That's, that's the brain that we share, that we have in common with primates. You know, even all the way down to reptile. So that primal brain, sometimes people call it the reptilian brain. So how do you influence a reptile? How do you influence any kind of vertebrates? Because those animals, they have a primal brain and they don't have much of a rational brain. Now, depending on which animal you're talking about, if you're talking about higher level uh, monkeys, for example, they are very smart, right? If you're talking about dolphins, if you're talking about dogs, Their neocortex is somewhat developed, and those animals are pretty smart. But if you go down the chain, and if you're talking about a reptile, a reptile has a reptilian brain and pretty much not much more. Right? So how would you try to influence a reptile to eat this or versus eat that, or to go in this direction versus that direction? This is where it becomes difficult. Right? You know, you have to simplify your message. You have to really get rid of a lot of intellectual concept to get down to the essence of what makes your product appealing to somebody. Right? So this, there is a language for that. I mean, again, we've been trying to decode that language for 20 years. And that language responds to six rules of communication. And we call them stimulus. You know, that brain is so primitive, it's so ancient, that it can only respond to one of six stimuli. So you need to learn that language, right? So that's, that's, what, that's how I would answer your question. So the language of persuasion follows some very basic, simple rules of an organ, which is about 500 million years old. Now, 500 million years ago, as you can imagine, we didn't have YouTube. We did not have a very sophisticated means of communication, right? So that brain only responds to those primal stimulus, and there are six of them, and I, I can tell you what they are. But the first stimulus is personal. 
In other words, the stimulus has to be directly impacting the person you're talking to because fundamentally people are selfish. You know, uh, compassion and other people is a very new brain kind of thing. Fundamentally, we are wired to worry only about one thing, which is me, me, me. So I worry about me, you worry about you. So if I am trying to influence you, my message should not be about me, but it should be all about you because the primal brain is personal. The second stimulus is contrastable. You know, the primal brain does not respond to the level of the stimulus in absolute, but in relative value. Let me explain that. Imagine you're in the middle of a noisy room, right? And somehow, somewhere, somebody drops a glass out there. So you might, you might hear it. Right? But now the same stimulus of noise over a completely dark background. In other words, if you hear a glass fall in a room where there is absolutely no noise, that will make you jump. So again, it's not the value of the stimulus that it's important. It's its relative value over a, a certain background. So that's contrast. So again, the second stimulus is contrastable. The third stimulus is tangible. Now, the primal brain is a brain that existed before we were using words. Language is not tangible enough, right? I mean, the primal brain, if you're trying to influence somebody by saying, oh, you should buy my solution because it will provide the end user with a flexible, easy, integrated solution, all these words are highly abstract. In fact, language in itself is too abstract. Why? Because we started to use written language only about 8,000 years ago. Spoken language is only about 50,000 years old, but the primal brain is 500 million years old. So the lang that language that I'm talking about of, of this primal brain is not even a language because words are very ineffective when I try to influence you, right? So for example, imagine if I was going to tell you, hey, Maurice, you should be careful because there is a cold-blooded, oviviparian, wild, poisonous reptile under your seat. Do you see how long it will take you to react? Because huh? I'm using words. Mm -hmm. Or I could show you a snake. Huh? I could do this. Maurice, look, instantly you will jump, right? So the stimulus has to be tangible. And words, for example, are not tangible enough. So the primal brain understands only very simple, tangible concepts like green apple, because the green apple, we all understand its food, its survival. So again, personal, contrastable, tangible. The next one is visual. So I just said, you know, the primal brain does not understand words, but it understands pictures. So the idea is you have to communicate in a visual way. Why? So there are physiological reason for that. So the nerve that attaches between your eye and your brain is actually 50 times faster than the nerve from the ear to the brain. Right? So apparently the eye is an older structure around the brain than the ear itself. Uh, in fact, if you look at the way the eye is connected to the brain, it's connected to the brain through the optic nerve, which is about two inches long. So it's a nerve that's about five centimeters long, and that nerve plugs directly into the primal brain. So that the next stimulus again is visual. The next one is memorable. So here is what's happening. If I tell you something today, it's not that valuable. What's important is what will you remember about what I say when you will make the decision. Now, when you will make the decision is an unconscious process. So it, what I mean by this is very often people have made the decision. They just don't know they've made the decision. But if I am the guy responsible for sales and marketing in my company, and I'm meeting with a client today, and I know that they will make the decision in three months from now, I have to build my message not for what I'm going to say now, but for what they will remember in three months. Right? So the stimulus has to be memorable. And the factor that will make something memorable has three components to it. In other words, human memory is one of the most complicated systems in the universe. In other words, I had a chance to talk to Damasio. I talked to one other of the top, you know, world greatest neuroscientists by the name of Joseph Ledoux, who is head of the neuroscience department at New York University. 
And I asked them, how does human memory work? And their answer was not compatible. So when you ask the two top world experts, they don't agree as to how human memory works. And they go into explanations that are so complicated that an animal like me, who doesn't have a PhD in neuroscience, but who spent his, his life you know, studying a simple way to look at the brain, I could not understand. So I could not accept that. And I told them what I thought, how we could express what memory works, how memory works, and how you know, our memory will help us remember a specific event. And I found three factors that are critical for memory. The first one is very easy to understand. It's repetition. Repetition, meaning that you didn't learn the alphabet the first time you heard it. Your parents had to repeat to you the alphabet many, many times. Does that make sense? Everybody understand the factor of repetition. The other two are a little bit more complicated to understand. The second one is that what we talked about, which is the location, the position of the stimulus within a list. You know, we do not remember things linearly. Scientists have called that the recency primacy effect. So we tend to remember things at the beginning of an interaction. We remember things at the end and we forget everything in between. So repetition plus the location of the stimulus within a list. That's the second factor. And the third factor is emotion. In other words, we do not remember things when they are not attached with a certain emotion. And the easiest way to explain that is, I hope you're old enough, but do you remember where you were on September 11th, 2001? Yeah. Right? Do you remember where you were? Yeah, well, with my parents in the living room. And even though like, I was quite young, but I still remember it because they were so shocked. <laughs> yeah, so you were in front of the TV watching this, right? Mm. Now, why is it that you remember where you were that day? I mean, I, I was, I'm a lot older than you are, so not only do I remember where I was, but I remember where I had lunch, with whom I was that day, what I did that day, right? And I cannot remember what I did three days ago. Why is that? It's because on September 11th, our brains were flooded with emotions, and those emotions act like an acid, which printed into our memory that particular event, right? So again, I believe that to make an event memorable, you need to repeat it, you need to position it at the beginning or at the end, but not in the middle. And it needs to be embodied, embedded with a certain level of emotion. So again, the problem is we believe that emotions are irrational. It's because we have a problem in language. In language, if I tell you, Maurice, don't be emotional, that's not what I mean. What I mean is don't be irrational. Right? You know, we believe that emotions are irrational, but it's absolutely completely wrong because scientists study the rationality of emotion, right? So for example, if I was gonna punch you right now, it would be irrational for you to be upset about me, right? So you would feel that emotion, well, Patrick is crazy, why did he hit me? And you would probably wanna hit me back, but it is rational to react that way, right? So what we have to understand is emotions are rational and emotions are chemical reactions inside our brain. So scientists have studied emotion. To my knowledge, there are at least 22 different models of emotion. I have my favorite one. My favorite one is by an American scientist called Pluchik. And Pluchik talks about eight primary emotion. When you combine these emotions, you can create a palette of up to about 64,000 different kinds of emotion. For which, sadly enough, though, we have only 8,000 words which describe emotion. So think about it. We are capable of experiencing 64,000 different kinds of emotion, but we can name only 8,000 of them. Now, most of these emotions, by the way, never reach the level of consciousness. In other words, I could tell you, Maurice, you're sad, but it's too bad because you don't even know you're sad. Why? Because again, those emotions are chemical reactions inside the brain. Right? And some of them, we are aware of them, some of them, we are not. Now, of course, Recently, only about 20 to 30 years ago, the pharmaceutical companies have been able to create molecules that can affect these emotional states. So for example, if you're depressed, you should go see your doctor because your doctor knows of some molecule, which if you take them, is gonna alter this and you're gonna feel a lot better. Right? But what we have to understand is that 
those emotions are the result of chemical reactions inside our brain. And of course, in marketing, it's important to understand that because at the end of the day, the secret to selling is very simple. The secret to selling is that your customer has to go from a negative emotion. I'll give you an example of that. Imagine if I sell you a program to lose weight, right? So I'm going to sell you a program where I'm going to ship you different kinds of meals, right? And you're going to belong to a gym club, so where I'm going to make you work out. So I'm going to make you work out. I'm going to make you eat better. And I'm going to put you into a group of people who have the same problem as you so that you will have the psychological reinforcement of working as a team to lose weight. What's the secret of selling that program? Well, the secret of selling that program is to get people from a negative emotion where they feel they are overweight, where they cannot climb the stairs without being you know, out of breath. And they need to feel a positive emotion when that they will feel better when they will have lost 50 pounds. So how, how would you communicate that? Well, it's very simple. And in fact, that's the way they do it, right? The simplest way to get people to experience that uplift of emotion is to do what? First, I'm going to show you a picture of you at 300 pounds, right? So you're vastly overweight. You're 150 kilograms. So when I'm seeing the image, I'm looking at it. I'm going, oh, yeah, this is me. My life is terrible. I'm overweight. I can't climb the stairs. You know, I'm out of breath. I can't mm. exercise. My friends are deserting me, blah, blah, blah. I feel the negative emotion, right? And then on the right side of the image now, I'm going to show a picture of another guy. I mean, it's, it's the same guy who has lost 150 pounds, right? And although it's not you on the picture, your primal brain is not capable of telling the difference. In other words, your primal brain thinks, oh, this is me today. I'm overweight. And if I buy the program to lose weight, this is going to be me in two months from now. Right? And that makes you experience a positive emotion. Again, in marketing terms, we call that the emotional uplift. So your job, if you're selling anything, is to come up with ideally one image that shows that. Right? Mm. But again, it looks very simple because I walked you through the whole process in one very simple example. But in reality, for a lot of companies, it is very difficult to do that, right? But that, that's, what I talk the, that's what I call the language of the primal brain. That primal brain responds to a language which has only six components. It's got to be personal. It has to be contrastable. By the way, the contrast here is in the image that I was describing, right? The contrast is between the guy who is 150 kilograms and the same guy who is now only 100 kilograms. That's contrast. It's tangible, I can see myself, right? It's memorable, it's visual, it's definitely visual. And then of course the emotional stimulus is, oh yeah, no, me too, I could lose 50 kilograms. Mm. Yeah, I lo love these categories and they make perfect sense, especially like me looking at my background with like, I've sold things through funnels in the marketing space, but also like, a lot of coaching. And it's super helpful because in the end there are like many scripts and stuff and they, They have many of these aspects, for example, accessible, the relatable thing. It's super important to make people clear, to, to bring them through the journey and see, like, show them what at the end of the coaching program is. So uh, super helpful categories. Love, here's some examples of some of the stuff you have been selling in the more higher end. I'm not, not sure how you phrased it, but some of the examples of, of your work in these categories. You, you mean in the category of complex sales? Complex sales, that was the word. Right, and that's, that's okay because this is really where I spend most of my life, right? I sold supercomputers, which were worth multi-million dollars, you know, solutions. And when you sell a solution like this, you have to realize that you cannot talk about the product in too much detail because you're going to be at it for 10 years. Uh, as you know, a computer is something complicated. And when you're talking supercomputers, it gets super complicated, right? So you could talk forever about, virus protection, networking, graphics, storage. I mean, it, it's an endless discussion. So these six stimuli, I have translated it into four steps. And the four steps are the key steps of persuasion. So because the primal brain is personal, the job of the effective salespeople is not to start by selling, but to start by diagnosing the pain of their customers. And the problem is very simple, is that very often, 
And the more complicated it is what you're selling, the less the customer is aware of his or her own pain. Let me give you an example. If I am trying to sell you water, the pain is very simple. It's people are thirsty, right? So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to do that. But the more complicated the product, the more disconnection there is going to be between what the pain related to the product is and what the product does. Let me give you an example. Now, imagine I am trying to sell you a home-delivered pizza. So everybody understands what a pizza is, right? And I have a company that sells, that has a few trucks. I have a good oven and a really good recipe for pizza. And now I'm trying to try to sell you that pizza. Right? So let me ask you a question. What do you think is the pain or the negative emotion that drives the behavior of the average consumer of home-delivered pizza? Now, let's think about it. You're, you're at home, right? You're going to place the order on the phone. What do you think is the strongest negative emotion that is flooding your brain as you're doing this you know, online ordering? Yeah, I would say hunger. So hunger, I would argue, is not a pain. It is a need. You know, mm -hmm. you're aware that you're hungry, right? In fact, your primal brain is telling you you're hungry. So it's going, you know, you need to feed me. I'm starving. So I'm going to talk in a minute about the iceberg of decision driver. And in that iceberg, over the pain, you're, you're right. There is, I am hungry. But that's not the number one pain. So what do you think of the other negative emotion that you may experience? Or you could say, for example, that you're afraid that I'm going to deliver the wrong pizza, right? or that the pizza will arrive cold, or that it will take too long. Right? But it's not the right answer. And now I would like to tell you a story. So about 35 years ago in the area of Detroit, Michigan, there was a small pizza shop. And they made a survey. They asked a lot of people, what is the number one thing that drives you nuts when you buy a online your pizza? And guess what the answer was? The answer was, it's the anxiety of not knowing when the pizza will arrive. The anxiety. Oh, yeah. And that little pizza shop, they came up with a slogan, and their slogan was, 30 minutes or less, or it's free. And if you knew a little bit about American culture, you would immediately have recognized what that company is that company is Domino's Pizza. And Domino's became number one in the business, not because they make the best pizza, but because they are solving this issue of the pain. So the moral of my story is that Domino's is not in the pizza business. Domino is a FedEx organization which happened to sell pizza. You know, the pizza is only an accessory to the business. But they were able to do that because 35 years ago, they diagnosed the pain and the pain is, and I'm going to repeat it, the anxiety of not knowing when the pizza will arrive. And the mission statement of Domino is to eliminate that pain. And you can hear it in their slogan, which is 30 minutes or less, or it's free. And that concept made them very successful because not just the VP of marketing or the CEO of Domino's knows this. Everybody at Domino's knows it, even the guy who drives the trucks to deliver the pizza. So that's what I mean by diagnosing the pain. And it's the first step in our process. It's to realize that when you're selling pizza, in reality, the customer doesn't really care so much about the pizza. They mm -hmm. care more about the delivery of the pizza. So I'll give you another example because it's also a very famous company, but it's uh, Starbucks, right? So Starbucks, now if you travel to the United States, you would notice there's a Starbucks on every corner of every street in New York or in San Francisco, right? Now, what do you think is the number one pain that Starbucks eliminates? Because everybody thinks that Starbucks is in the coffee business, right? But that's wrong. In fact, the CEO of Starbucks, a guy by the name of Howard Schultz, I mean, he's no longer CEO, he's still president now, but he said, so I'm going to ask you the question instead. Do you know what is the number one pain that drives people to stop at Starbucks? I'm not, I'm maybe socializing that for work. That was one thing. Yeah, so you're, you're in the right direction, but your diagnostic is not accurate enough. So here is what the CEO of Starbucks says. He says, today, the average American person spend half of their life in the office and the other mm -hmm. half 
at home. And the pain that they experience is they don't have a transitional environment between home and the office. And you know how they call that at Starbucks? They call that the third place. Starbucks is the third place. It's not home, it's not the office, but it's a transitional environment for people to go in between. Mm. And guess what? They go at great length to train their employees, all the employees, on what it means to be a good third place. So think about it. Domino is not in the pizza business. Domino is a FedEx organization. Starbucks is not in the coffee business. They are in the third place business, right? So whatever it is that you're selling, most likely you think you're in the wrong business because you have not properly diagnosed the pain in the brain of your customer. I'll give you another example, very simple one. Imagine if you're selling drills and drill bits, right? So you have a machine that makes holes. Most people that are in the drill business, they will talk to you about my drill rotates at 10,000 RPM and my drill is that and my wrong because when people buy a drill they don't want a drill you know what they want more holes so you are in the hole enabling business but guess what if you do a further diagnostic you would realize that people don't want to buy drills to put more holes in their walls nobody wants to put more holes in their walls right maybe people want to hang pictures on the wall so if you're selling drills, instead of talking about the drills, you should talk about the fact that you're in the picture hanging enabling business. Right? So for example, if I'm selling you the drill and you work for a hotel chain and you will have to install 10,000 pictures on the walls, I have to find other benefits for my drill. So maybe my drill is lighter than any of the other drills. And since you're gonna have to go up that ladder and your wrist is going to be tired at the end of the day, the only thing that you should be talking about is the fact that my drill is the lightest drill. Right? So you see there is a complete mind shift that's going to happen when people realize the pain, in other words, the negative emotion that the product eliminates in the brain of our customers. But that's the first step in our process. You have to be clear. Do you want to be in the pizza business or do you want to be in the delivery business? Yeah. There's nothing yeah. wrong in being in the pizza business. The problem is you're never going to become Domino's. Right? If you think you're in the coffee business, you will never become Starbucks. And if you think you're in the drill business, you will never become, I don't know, Black & Decker or whatever. You never sell those drills. Hmm. Yeah, so, I love that. I, I gave you the very first step in our process. That first step is linked to the first stimulus. Because people are selfish, the stimulus has to be personal effective sales and marketing organization that diagnose the pain in other words and it's very few companies do that as you can imagine because there are very few dominoes right more people yeah. believe they are in the pizza business as opposed mm -hmm. to being in the deliver yeah i so love that it. Not, on, not even for persuasion only, but I can see with the Starbucks example, if you are very clear on that thing and you have that in your company and the people around you are clear, then you can derail the, the, the business processes. For example, Starbucks putting the names on the coffee cups to create more familiarity, to create a connection with the customers, which is something like, yeah, if you don't have a reason why you should be doing these things, it's great because it guides everything below what you're doing in the company with the fulfillment of the thing, but also then with the persuasion. And what that means also in terms of persuasion is an interesting byproduct of this issue. So again, the first step of our process is you have to diagnose the pain. Now, most people, when they are in a selling situation, so for example, imagine Maurice, I was going to try to sell you something. I would feel compelled to talk to you, right? In other words, if I want to sell you the pizza, I'm going to stop. I'm going to get excited. I'm going to talk to you about the pizza. But it's counterintuitive because persuasion starts not by telling, but by asking. In other words, if I want to persuade you to buy my pizza, I'm going to ask you a question. So, Maurice, what kind of pizza do you like? You know, how hungry are you right now? So, diagnosing the pain requires two skills. It requires the skill of asking the right question right? and listening but not just the regular listening, right? Deep listening. In other words, if I can demonstrate to you that I am carefully listening to your problem, then you're going to start to trust me. You're going to start to like me. And those steps are very important in persuading people. So this is kind of counterintuitive, but the act of selling in reality is 80% diagnosing and only 20% selling. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah, absolutely. So, 
The problem is most people don't understand what listening really means. In other words, there is a science of listening. Some researchers have written really interesting papers on it. And there are five things that you can do to listen deeply. So I mean, I'm not sure we want to go into this because we're going to be here for three hours. But just people need to be aware that there is a science of listening. It involves five very specific skills. And very few people are trained on this. Why? Because when we hire salespeople, we train them on talking. We don't train them on listening. But however, people who do a good diagnostic are better listeners than talkers. So this is the, the fallacy of the whole thing. I would love to learn a little bit. You, I mean, you are right. To, what's just a brief summary of the five things or maybe one or two more? All right, all right. I'll, I'll pick up one. So listening means that I'm going to demonstrate to you that I am more interested in you than I am interested in making my numbers by selling you more stuff. So how can you demonstrate to the person in front of you that you are more interested in them than in you? So one of the five things is your ability to remember details. Mm. So imagine you and I, we are involved in a long discussion and I am trying to sell you my pizza. And, and then five minutes after you've told me that you have a family of three, I tell you, well, if you want to feed your three kids and you told me that five minutes ago, your, your unconscious mind goes, oh, wow, this guy was paying attention to what I was saying because five minutes later, he can recall the details. So that's signaling your brain that I am listening to you, which means I consider that you're important, which means that you know, it's the best way to build rapport. So that's one of the five techniques to show that you're listening deeply. Okay. Well, the other ones, we, by the way, are like a, a lot more complicated to explain. Is there like any resources? Because I would love to learn more about that. Is there like a model? Um, I can never remember their name, but the original people who did that research were psychologists at a university in the US. Mm -hmm. uh, I cannot remember their name. I know the yeah. five, the five yeah. laws, but yeah. uh, it's pretty easy to find. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's continue in the process. Where were we? We have diagnosed. So, so we're on the first step, which is diagnose pain. And we need to do that because the primal brain is selfish. It's all about me personally, and I don't care about you. So the most effective way to persuade people, by the way, that persuasion works in the context of selling, but it works for anything else. In other words, if I'm trying to persuade my spouse, my wife, that she needs to make coffee this morning when you know, every morning I make coffee, then I should not try to tell to try to influence her by telling her, honey, you should make coffee this morning. And if you do that, I should find ways to ask her questions, which are going to help her understand why I'm trying to influence her on making coffee. You know, always put the person you're trying to influence at the center of your exercise. So that's the first one. That the second step is differentiate your claims. So here's what happened. Imagine I am trying to sell you water. Chances are there are other people that are selling water, right? So if I am trying to sell you water, I have to explain to you why my water is better than any other water. I'm going to call that the claims. You know, will my prospect see very clearly the differences between what I'm trying to sell you and all the other alternatives that they have to eliminate their pain? So let me give you an example. So imagine you are walking in the desert and you're very thirsty, right? So my first job will be to diagnose your pain. Now, of course, here it's not going to last very long because if you're really, really thirsty, you're not going to be willing to talk too much. But let's still imagine that you talk to me a little bit. And at that moment, then you're going to have to decide, am I going to buy your water or am I going to buy another drink? Maybe a Coca-Cola or something, right? So do we all agree that my probability to sell you the water is directly proportional to the intensity of your pain, which means the more thirsty you are, the more chances I can sell you water. In other words, if you're not thirsty at all, why would you want to buy water from me at zero? Or, but if you're really dying to, you know, thirst, you might be willing to pay $1,000 for a small bottle of water. But at the moment you will decide if you have competitor, If you have one competitor and there is nothing that differentiates you from your competitor, 
then you divide your probability to sell by 50%. Because if your customer chooses randomly, there is one chance out of two that he will take your water versus your competitor's water. So you have to find a way to differentiate your claims so that you tweak the odds to go in your favor. Right? So that's what I call differentiate your claim. So for example, if your competitor is Coca-Cola and you're selling water, because Coca-Cola is not the ultimate drink to eliminate thirst, the fact that your water has zero calories, zero sugar, it's going to be more refreshing. Right? So my claim is, again, imagine I only have one competitor. My competitor is Coca-Cola and I'm selling pure water. Right? So my claim is that my water is going to eliminate your thirst better than any other drink. I mean, any other drink, there's only one and it's Coke. So that would be my claim. And that's the second step. So people have to find the unique reason or a maximum of three unique reasons why your water is better than your competitor's drinks. We call that the claims. Some people miscall that the unique selling proposition, but for us, claims mean something very different. All right, it's a line, but it's, it's, it, it's not completely different, but it's almost the same thing. But the best analogy to explain that is a book. So we recommend that you write a book and that, that book should be titled Why Buy From Us. Now, most companies, when they communicate, guess what? They communicate the who we are and what we do. In fact, you look at 98% of all websites, 98% of all websites are focused on two types of information. Those informations are who we are and what we do. The problem is who you are and what you do doesn't have much persuasive power. Instead, we tell people, you need to highlight the why they should buy from you. So we teach corporations and individuals how to write a book, which is going to be titled, Why Should You Choose Us? And in that book, the claims are going to be the title of the three chapters in the book. In other words, the claims are the top three reasons why your customer should buy from you as opposed to buying from anybody else. So in the case of selling you water, if my only competitor is Coca-Cola, there's going to be only one chapter in my book. And the chapter in my book, Why Buy My Water, will be the most refreshing water. There's only one chapter in my book, right? the most refreshing water. So I'll give you another example of a more famous company. Now, I'm going to throw a brand at you, a brand of a car. And I'm going to ask you, why would people buy that brand of car? Because we're going to try to identify the claim of that brand of car. Yeah? Mm. So if I say Volvo, what's the claim? Uh, good price, convenient, family. Maybe you're too young. Because when I do this test in the US with people 40, 40 mm. years of age and older. I'm German, so you can ask me about double BMW and Audi, premium cars. Yes. <laughs> That's, That's what right. comes to mind. <laughs> no, but, but the claim of Volvo for a lot of people is safety. Mm. You know, if you ask people, why would you buy Volvo? Most people think safety. Why? Because for 60 years, Volvo has told you that if you buy a Volvo, chances are you're going to buy the safest car. So if we were going to write a book called Why Buy a Volvo Today, there should be only one chapter in that book, and that chapter will be safety. Simplicity. In fact, if you go on the Volvo website, you would notice that they, they have a tagline which says, safety at every angle. Right? So if we were going to buy a... BMW, it would be the pleasure of driving, right? the mm -hmm. ultimate driving machine. Now, let's talk about Mercedes. If you were going to write a book about Mercedes, there would be only one chapter in that book. You know what it would be? Class. Right? So, and it goes on and on. If you were going to write a book called Why Buy a Porsche, it would be ultimate performance. If you were going to write a book called Why Buy a Ferrari, it would be the ultimate, ultimate performance. Right? By the way, Between a Porsche and a Ferrari, there is not that much difference of performance. However, the price is still three times higher. And what is the, what is the pain that you address? It's a completely different pain. You know, people don't buy a Ferrari because they can drive 150 miles an hour on the highway. People drive a Ferrari for the ultimate ego-boosting machine, right? Well, maybe there is a difference. But if you're not married, Maybe you buy a Ferrari to, you know, get married, right? But if you're married, then you buy the Ferrari to rub it in the face of your neighbors and say, 
look, I am driving a Ferrari because very few people that drive a Ferrari actually enjoy the car to its fullest, right? Because you, you, you cannot drive it on the highway at the maximum speed limit, and blah, blah, blah. So you have to establish those claims and that's the second step in our process where you need to differentiate your claims because most likely you have competitors and in the brain of your customers, your solution appears to be very similar to your competitors. And that doesn't help people buy because contrast, right? If there is not enough contrast between what you do and your competitors, then you're not maximizing your probability to persuade. That's the second step. And the third step is you have to demonstrate the game. You know, it is not enough to say, I have the most refreshing water because you have not demonstrated it, right? So you need to demonstrate the game. And how can you do that? Well, maybe you could say, we had a panel of experts and out of 100 doctors who are all experts in thirst, right? So imagine there was a specialty medicine called the thirst doctor. So there will be people that are expert in, you know, the mouse and your tongue and your, your, the fluid in your body. Imagine if you had a panel of 100 of those doctors who said, Maurice water is the most refreshing water. We did a test. We tested a thousand consumers. They were very thirsty. We give them the water. So now I am trying, I'm not just telling you my water is the most refreshing. I can bring a proof to the fact that my water is the most refreshing because a panel of 100 doctors specialized in thirst are saying this is the most refreshing water. So that's the, second, the third step where you demonstrate the game. And the last step then is to find a way to communicate that message directly to the primal brain. So again, the four steps in our process are diagnose the pain, differentiate your claims, demonstrate the game, and then the last one, deliver to the primal brain. So let's, let's again give you an example now. Now imagine you're walking in the desert and you haven't had a drink for three days. And you get to a table and on that table, there are two competitors. One has a little sign and the little sign says, the coldest, the freshest water in the world, right? But it's written just in small. And then the second, at the end of the table, you have another competitor. And instead of having a sign that says fresh water, the guy has a frozen cascade of water and he's delivering small samples of really cold water in a little cup, but just a few drops. Huh? He's giving them for free. And he has Hawaiian music in the background. And the people that are you know, giving the free samples of water are wearing very cute bikinis. So who do you think is going to win? The guy who has a sign that says fresh water or the guy who has a cascade of frozen water with really good looking people giving free sample? Of course, we all know who, why? Because that guy was able to deliver your message of fresh water directly to your primal brain. He delivered it with the Hawaiian music, with the false man poles, and with good looking people in bikinis. So at the end of the day, it's not with the one with the best product that wins. It's the one who has the most primal message that wins, right? There is a language to that message. And that language is very well known by people in the medical field, but it is, was still unknown by the people in the world of sales and marketing. And that's why I started a business 20 years ago. And that's why I published several books on the subject. So what we do is we teach people that language. That language is relatively simple. It has six rules of vocabulary. We call that stimuli. And the delivery to the primal brain, this is where our books get a lot more fine grain. I cannot talk about it in two seconds. It would be like if you were telling me, Maurice, teach me, teach me French in yeah. half an hour. It's a language, so mm. people have to get into it. But that, that, that language, again, will reuse the concept of pain, claim, and gain. Yeah, I love that you call it the language because I'm thought a lot about like the, brain, the subconscious brain and the right and left hemisphere and 
it just makes sense. Like we, we can't get too, in too much in depth into it now because we already touched a few things, but I really resonate with that concept of getting better off talking with that brain using images and stuff like that. And in that regard, I would like to ask you, we talked a lot about sales and persuasion. Um, during your studies of the brain, understanding human psychology, what are maybe one thing, maybe two things that are your personal takeaways that influence your life in a positive way because you understood the brain and could implement some changes? Right. So again, my expertise was only in the field of sales and marketing. So all my work so far has been to help people sell more, more effectively. But understanding the primal brain could lead to a lot of changes in the world. I'll give you an example. If you understand the language of persuasion, then we could have better education. Because education is a persuasive exercise where I need to persuade you that you need to learn what I know, right? Because education is this. You have the learners, the students, and you have a teacher, somebody who knows something that the student don't know. So education is just a knowledge transfer from one brain to another brain. So if teachers understood better how the brain works, they could become better educators. If, you know, for example, our publisher has been recommending that we write a book for singles. Think about persuasion for singles. What does that mean? Well, when you're single, you're trying to sell yourself to other people so that maybe you're going to have a life of, you know, common life. Well, a lot of people don't know how to sell themselves. And the result is 50% of couples, that's a rough average, in the world divorce. So think about all the misery because people are trying to sell something that they are not and they are trying to buy something that they don't need. So if everybody understood better their primal brain, we would have better marriage, we would have better education, we would have better justice. You know, how many judges know about the recency primacy effect. And you know what that means? Most likely, if you're convicted of something, you don't want to be judged in the middle of the day because in the middle of the day, the judge awareness will fall down. Their awakeness will not be as acute. You know, a judge is less smart in the middle of the day. They are a lot smarter at the beginning and at the end of the day. So we would have better justice if people understood the primal brain. Maybe we could treat people with mental diseases better. So there is a lot of other areas other than sales and marketing where understanding the primal brain, we would have better parenting, you know? Because think about it, if I'm a father and I have a teenager, I don't understand why my teenager act that way. I mean, in the US, you know, it's almost a joke. Anytime a kid leaves their family and goes to university, The first year is not a year of, of studying. The first year at most university in the U.S. is a drinking year. Because, you know, the, the, the legal age for drinking in the U.S. is 21. Now, those kids go to university, they are 18 or 19, and suddenly they realize that they can get a lot, a lot of alcohol pretty easily. Guess what? It's drinking, bunking, you know, bulge drinking, and they go all nuts. So if people understood the primal brain of their children better, we would have better parenting. So my, I mean, it might be the next step in my life. And that's actually the call that I have in my TED talk. You know, I, I, I did a TED talk about eight years ago where I'm talking about this, but my TED talk is a call to get people that are experts in education or experts in parenting or experts in dating or experts in, um, you know, judges and apply that model to those areas. You know, I have, I have discovered the language of persuasion and I've applied it to the world of, I'm going to try to influence you to buy my stuff. But if you're my son, I'd like to influence you to grow and worry about your happiness and all that, right? So as a father, how does that apply? What should I know? What should I do? As a teacher, what should I do differently? So if you know anybody who are experts in that field, have them give me a call because I would love to do this. Yeah, amazing stuff because I love talking about principles because if you understand these things at a different level, there are like so many options. You mentioned just a few examples because in the end, we live in a world that's full of humans. And if you get better at understanding how they behave, at understanding how you can interact and change their behavior, that's a super valuable skill. 
Patrick, thanks for being here. Thanks for being in the show. I would really liked it. Really great stuff. So by wrapping up, I would like to give you like one last chance. Are there any last things, pieces of bit, bits of advice that you want to share? And where can people find you? So anything. Sure. Well, uh, we talked about the act of persuasion as an external act, right? I, I'm going to try to persuade you to do something. But down the road, though, if people understand better their own primal brain, I believe that this is the key to happiness. So, you know, I have my business life where I'm very focused on what we discussed. But on my personal life, I've been studying Buddhism for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, meditation is a good way to get to understand your primal needs. Right? So I would encourage everybody, if they are not interested in persuading others, but if they are interested in increasing their level of own happiness, that understanding your own primal brain is really the key to happiness. So they, they can read about it. They, you know, there are plenty of books out there that will talk about it. Uh, and depending on your level of interest, some of these books are difficult to read. We talked about Kahneman's book. Kahneman's book is titled Think Fast and Slow. It's a great book, but it's PhD plus level reading. So it's not a book for everybody. You know, it's, it's a book. Everybody talks about it, but less than 20% of the people finish reading it. So if you have a PhD and you want to study, so that's a great book. But if you don't have a PhD and you're not interested in it, Kahneman's book is not the ultimate book. But there are many other books that you guys can find that will give you ideas of how that primal brain drives your behavior. And I believe that this understanding is key to your business success, but it's also key to your personal happiness success. Thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing that. Um, definitely great advice. Self-awareness, it's so important. Like this in combination with gratitude and incorporating it in my life really has been a game changer for me as well. So yeah, where can people find about you? Where can I get in touch with you, with your work? So my last book is called The Persuasion Code. It's available by Wiley. We have it in 12 languages already. So we just published it in Spanish, for example. Um, and our website is salesbrain.com. And if they are interested in my TED Talk, they can, uh, they can go on YouTube, type the word neuromarketing. And my last name, it's going to be one of the one of the videos that's going to pop out. And uh, we now have also a free course on LinkedIn. So if you go on LinkedIn and you have LinkedIn Premium, you will get my course. It's called The Neuroscience of Selling. Uh, it's called The Persuasion Code, The Neuroscience of Selling. And it's a 48-minute presentation. Now, it's, um, there, is, there is video in it. So it's, it's, uh, I think it's a pretty good course. And it's free for people with premium. They, they can get it. So that's another way to learn more. And then um, what else can I say? You know, if you can Google my name, you will find my email somewhere. It's patrick at salesbrain.com. And again, if you're an educator or if you're a judge and if you're interested in applying that model, I am uh, looking to hear back from you and we can work together on co-authoring a new book on this. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in today on the Entrepreneurial Brain Podcast. If you like the show, please take a minute to review our show on iTunes or any other podcast platform. This will help me a ton to reach a bigger audience with the podcast, but also the most important thing to really get world-class leaders, world-class performers, experts, scientists, and ultimately just create amazing episodes with a lot of value for you. Thanks in advance for your support. My name is Maurice and I will see you on the next show of the Entrepreneurial Brain Podcast.